0: This is Ed Gunger. Welcome to our podcast. This is our last podcast in our confirmation series. I hope that you have found the series meaningful. This episode is part two on the question of Christian ethics, which speaks to the way that you and I choose to live. Ethics involve our understanding of right and wrong. Ethics guide our steps. In the context of Christianity, the way one lives... Is actually as critical as what one believes. Early on, Christianity was actually called the Way, precisely because of this point. We discovered last time that the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, were deeply embedded in the in the minds of the Hebrew people. It gave them their sense of right and wrong. It's what framed their understanding of ethics. This Big Ten served as a kind of bulb. From which Christian ethics and that conversation emerged. It's a system of ethics that's based on revelation from God, as God spoke with Moses. So here's a legitimate question. Why should those of us under the new covenant care about something that was founded under a former covenant, a covenant that really is no longer dominant for us? Why would we care? Well, Romans 6.15 says we are not under the law, but under grace. That would suggest let's move on, right? 1 Timothy 1 and 9 says something similar, realizing, Paul writes, the fact that the law is not made for righteous people, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers. So these texts are true. That we are not just under the law. But, But here's the danger if you're not careful. That doesn't mean we can violate or ignore those laws. I mean, listen to Jesus on this point. This is Matthew 5 and 17. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, just discount them completely. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The term for thinking there is no longer any law in force, that ethical commands like the Ten Commandments are no longer applicable, is called antinomianism. And you don't want to be part of antinomianism. Um, you don't want to be part of an idea that there are no commands that are still valid and enforced. They are, they are still in force and they are valid. I mean, I've known some really wonderful Christian people and Christian leaders who sometimes overstate grace. I mean, there's some that actually say because of grace and because of the cross, uh, Christians can't even really sin, that grace immediately covers it. I mean, obviously the church has always held that grace covers sin, right? But this is not an excuse to ignore the commands of God in places like the Decalogue. In fact, we're called to own our disobedience if disobedience happens, and to come to God for forgiveness when we violate commands. God is always faithful to forgive, but we need to be honest about the ways that our hearts have wandered from obedience to God's directives. John, in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, says it this way, if we say we have no sin, right, when we have sin, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. In other words, he's more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. And all you need to do is confess it. He's faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, in other words, from anything that's wrong, any unright in us. Now, when we hit the Gospels, we find Jesus talking about the commands that are found within the uh, Decalogue, and he's expanding on them. The first thing to notice about that is that he didn't ignore the list. I mean, he doesn't deal explicitly with every one of the Ten Commandments he might have, but we don't have a record of it. But he covers enough of them to show us the way that he thought about them in general. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't just take them on a purely surface level. He goes deeper. He addresses the issues of the heart that would lead us to violating those commands on an open level. Uh, Take the command, you shall not kill or you shall not commit adultery. When he talks about those, he drills down into the kinds of attitudes, the kinds of intentions that would have to be inside us, that would precede the overt breaking of those commands, attitudes and intentions that if unchecked would lead to the violation of those commands. It's here that Jesus shows us there's more to the idea of ethics than just straight-up obedience to orders like do not kill or do not commit adultery. There is a way in which ethics need to be spoken of from the level of the heart in the human experience. So let's look at these two examples in Jesus, the one about murder, the one about adultery. The first one about murders in Matthew 5, starting in twenty one, verse 21. Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said to our people long ago, you must not murder anyone. Anyone who murders another will be judged. But I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, which obviously precedes a murder, you will be judged. And if you say bad things to your brother, you will be judged by the Jewish council. And if you call your brother a fool, then you are in danger of the fires of hell. See, Jesus, which would lead you, Fires of hell are what lead to things like murder. Jesus is is saying anger unchecked could lead to murder. He's saying that when you talk about your neighbor in bad ways, if that is unchecked, it can lead to anger, which can unchecked lead to murder. Even categorizing someone as a fool in your mind can lead you to anger, which unchecked can lead you to murder. See, Jesus is upping the ante here. He's saying, He's not just saying, do not murder. I mean, that, uh, which would just be an obedience to an external command. Um, He's trying to get to to the essence of what was going on inside the person. One must look at the heart or what's going on in the inside or what's in your eye or in your intention in order to get at the violation of a command. This is what he's reaching for. When in a few verses he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell or to be under the influence of hell. If, and if your right hand causes you to f- stumble, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to, be, to go to hell. So another way of, to say this is um, get the wrong intentions out of your eye, in other words, pluck it out, man, gouge it out, get it out of your heart, get it out of your mind. Before you see it in your hand, you're actually doing it and you have to cut off your hand. See it's this idea that ethics are not just external in the hand, they start inside. He says the same thing about adultery. You've heard it was said you shall not be guilty of adultery, but I tell you if anyone looks at a woman with lust, he wants her, It could go either way with men as well with women toward men. Then he has already committed adultery with her in his mind or in his mind's eye, and then he follows that um, with this idea that if you you have to get the wrong intention out of your eye, out of your heart, out of your head before you see it, gouge that out before you see it in your hand and have to cut off your hand. Jesus, I think, is saying that ethics need to be governed on an internal level, from the heart, not just from an external avoidance of specific acts. When Jesus shifts attention to the heart, we discover his ultimate teaching about the law is this law of love, that the law that we see in Moses and the law that we see in the Ten Commandments, that idea of the Decalogue, is ultimately fulfilled in the law Of love, which is the Christian ethics, ethic conversation. It's about being loving persons. Hence, Jesus' famous statement about fulfilling the law and the Ten Commandments in response to a guy that asked him, What is the greatest commandment, right? And we see Jesus' take on the whole thing. This is in Matthew 20. And starting in verse 34, I said, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, Jesus says, and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here Jesus is saying that the whole law, the whole of ethics in general is established and fulfilled in human beings as they become loving persons. If you love God with your heart, if you love people as yourself, it will steer you smack into becoming an ethical person. That means that acting and living unethically is really the fruit of not being a loving person, of not loving God, of not loving your neighbor. Now, Paul says as much in Romans thirteen. He says the command this is starting in verse nine. The commandments: you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command: love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, here's an important note in this. Love is always about giving, not taking. So, rooted in the ethical life is the commitment to not try to take Take what has not been given, whether it's a thing, whether it's money, whether it's people, sexually or otherwise, whether it's opportunity or influence or friendships. um, Whenever you long for what has not been given, it breeds jealousy, it breeds envy, it breeds lust, it breeds covetousness. And this is what was at the center of the fall. I mean, the very essence of sin— in the story in the garden was they tried to take or they took what was not given the fruit of that tree was not given that tree was not given one of the central issues of being a eucharistic people which is so at the heart of christianity is about being a thankful people thankfulness focuses on what we have instead of being covetous for what we don't. We remember this every time we receive, not take, but receive the bread and the wine that's been consecrated at the altar. There is no joy in taking what has not been given. There is no peace in taking what has not been given. Again, Christian ethics are rooted in the idea. It's at its core, it's Christian love giving. Now here's The incredible challenge about Christian love. Christian love is a commitment to love as God loves. We read it in Ephesians 5 verse 1, therefore, Paul writes, be imitators of God, imitators of God, like we're God. As beloved children, walk in love. That's how God is. God is love. Just as Christ, he says, also loved you and gave himself up for us. He's really saying that we are to love one another like God loves us. And when you do that, you're an ethical person in the Christian sense. The wonderful news about God is that God loves us without condition. So to imitate that means we must love others without condition. God knows us completely and still loves us. J.I. Packer wrote, quote, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. This is the kind of love that we're called to bring to the world. This is the kind of love that is what Christian ethic is all about. This means God doesn't love us based on the actions, right, of us. He doesn't base his love on the actions of the person being loved. This God kind of love simply sets value and preciousness on persons. It isn't an earned thing. It just is. We are loved because we are. We belong because we are. And we are to turn that to our neighbor. Virginia Lively, who's a Presbyterian lady who's passed away a few years ago, tells of a vision she once had of Jesus Christ that gives us a snapshot of this kind of love. Her story first appeared in the mid-1950s in Guidepost magazine. And she wrote about her vision of Jesus. I'm going to read you a piece of it. Quote, The thing that struck me, as she's talking about as she's looking into Jesus' face, the thing that struck me was his utter lack of condemnation. I realized at once that he knew me down to my very morrow. He knew all the stupid, cruel, silly things I had ever done. But I also realized that none of those things, nothing I could ever do, would alter the absolute caring, the unconditional love that I saw in his eyes. I could not grasp it. It was too immense a fact. I felt that if I gazed at him for a thousand years, I still could not realize the enormity of that love. End quote. We have no idea why God loves us, but he does. God loves us. God pursues us. God longs for a relationship with us. We are totally accepted when imperfect. We have no need to provide any quid pro quo for God. No tit for tat. God just celebrates us. He loves us with abandonment which in a way is kind of reckless. I mean, the incarnation is exactly that, reckless love that ends in the murder of God on a tree in a garden that reverses the impact of that tree in the first garden. And this raises legitimate questions. I mean, if God is really like that? Why do so many verses in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, seem to say something different? I mean, they talk about God being angry. They talk about God's wrath. What's that about? Now there are a number of helpful ways to talk about that that are kind of beyond this uh, space that we're talking here um, that that address this seeming disparity. But the most compelling one to me is found in the book of Hebrews chapter one. We're starting in verse one. The text says, "In the past, God spoke to our ancestors and through the prophets in many, at many times, in various ways, one text says, in many ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. What the Hebrew writer is saying is, there's all kinds of ways that God spoke to us, but it was in bits and pieces. It wasn't all that clear. But when Jesus came, things got clear. God began to be known clearly through Jesus. And then verse three of that text says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's like saying, if God is light, Jesus is the bright. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had purified or provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, Jesus. Think of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. What was Jesus like? Read the Gospels. Total acceptance of all. Lack of judgment. Complete care. Love for all. He had a willingness to serve, to render his life. This is God. The revelation of Jesus was so drastic to those, to that first-century group of Jews that came to Christ. It was so drastic in contrast to the many ways that God had been talked about in terms of being vengeful and absolute that some in the early church actually thought Jesus was revealing a different God than the one that was in the Old Testament. I mean, that never was taken seriously by the majority of the church, but it has stuck in some ways through the history of the church. Here's the point. The idea of God's love being expressed through us is what is at the heart of Christian ethics. We are to love as God loves. Or maybe we can say that better by saying, we are to love with the love God loves us with. Romans 5 says it, verse 5, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God in other words, the love God has for us, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This suggests that what we're to do is love people in our world with the very love God loves us with. That we don't have to make it up. We don't have to force it. We just have to sort of get out of the way and reflect it in some ways. I think we're a lot like the moon, right? So the moon has no light. It shines, but it has no light. What it has is borrowed light. And if you look really careful at the moon, all you see are craters and it has a dark side. And I think that's the truth of it. If we really examine, if anyone really examines us as individuals, what we'll discover as we get close up, so we all have craters and we all have a dark side our hope is not really being light or being loving our hope is to reflect borrowed light the light that shot that cat is cast to us and we simply reflect it to those around us christian ethics love god love people Now, to fly back up 30,000 feet or so before we end this series, let me say, Christianity is about more than an event that occurs when you pray the sinner's prayer. It involves, as we've talked about, a commitment to the Scripture, a commitment to the creeds. It involves a sacramental imagination. It involves being open to the ways in which leaders, it's called the episcopacy, those that have been bishops and pastors and priests and deacons throughout the course of the church's history have talked about faith as they view scripture and creed and the sacramental imagination. The Christian life involves a commitment to prayer, and it's about living ethically, which is being a loving person, like God is loving. This is Christianity, and it is a way of living.